Well, good morning. morning. Our text this morning uh, comes from Exodus chapter 2. I can never remember. Do we stand? No? Okay. Are we good? Okay. What? Oh, it's my call. Okay, you can stay seated. You guys, you look so comfortable. All right. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let us pray. We ask now, then, our God, that by your Spirit you would speak to us words of comfort from the Scripture, that we may understand your purposes and our place in your plan of redemption for us and for all your people. Amen. Uh, We have a cold coming through our, going through our house. It is a cold. Actually, my son took the COVID test, so it's not, it's not COVID. Uh, And from my, my in-laws came in with a cold, and uh, so almost, I think everybody in the family now has it except for me because uh, I don't get sick due to a pure heart and clean living. But sometimes, <laughs> sometimes my body, in sympathy with those who are weaker than me, exhibits symptoms uh, like a sore throat. And so that's why I'm a, but it's, it's just, it's purely, I'm, I'm fine. Um, speaking to my father-in-law, he's a, he is a retired pastor and so, like me, he's in that stage of his ministry where he's doing a fair bit of pulpit supply, just coming into churches and doing one or one-offs, stuff like that. And we're talking last night, and in that circumstance, when you're the guest preacher, you're, you're, you want to be, on the one hand, you want to be careful not to step on any toes and so not to bring up something that, you know, might be a problem within the congregation. But on the other hand, sometimes you're just like, well, you're the guest preacher, you can just get away with whatever. And then, and then sometimes it's like, well, it, 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 or just, just go for it. And, and so there's, there's one thing 
uh, there, there's a particular issue, a particular saying that uh, Christians like to use, and it is an evil and pernicious lie. And I, and I, and I say that without any exaggeration. Uh, that they say to one another, you have, if you have been a Christian for longer than 10 minutes, you don't even have to be a Christian for, at all to have heard this, uh, but certainly someone has said this to you, and maybe you've said it to someone. Uh, and it is, it's the lie, it is a lie that says, God will never give you more than you can handle. Not in the Bible, and certainly not borne out by the history of the church because it would appear to me that those early martyrs certainly were given a whole lot more than they could handle. And in fact, the whole point of the Christian life is recognizing that God is about giving you more than you can handle. But the, whole, but the reason that lie, that lie is so attractive and so comforting is because we live in a world that's full of suffering and sorrow. And there's that urgent desire that everyone has, to, to stop being in pain. In pain, uh, it's pain is something that we don't think about enough, we don't appreciate enough. When you are in pain, it is the central fact of reality, right? When you, when you think back times when you're in pain, that is it. That is all that is going on in the world. When someone else is in pain, you know, that's too bad. But when you're in pain, when the, you want it to end, and when you sympathize with someone else, you want their pain and their suffering to end. And that's, as a pastor, as a Christian over the years, that's one of the primary objections I've run into to the gospel, to the Christian faith, is how can there be a good God and so much suffering in the world? We want pain to end, and so we say, when? This has to end. This has to, this, surely this has to come to an end now because I can't take it anymore. And of course, it doesn't work that way. It's never worked that way. The fact that you can't take it anymore does not mean it's going to end. There, there's no relationship between suffering and how much you can take. Because it will just keep on going if that is the nature of the beast. Sometimes God in His mercy brings it to an end. Sometimes He doesn't. And that, but that question, that question of when is really what is driving this text, is driving this, 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 this part, this passage in Moses' life as he is coming into his own and to his calling, to his understanding as the deliverer of God's people. And that's why that's why, driven that idea of when, the suffering has to come to an end. Surely now is the time. We cannot take it anymore. Now is the time for the suffering to come to an end. Why Moses failed to deliver the Hebrews. Because that's the problem in our passage. Moses is called to be the deliverer of God's people. And yet he fails to do that. In verse 11, it says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. In other translations, one of his brethren, one of his brothers. Moses identified himself with the Hebrews. And it's important, this, this is one of those cases where as a, a preacher, you have to 
disabuse people of popular understandings of Bible stories, where we read into the text uh, some, some misconceptions, and so it's Cecil B. DeMille's fault and, and every, every other movie that's made on the life of Moses' fault, is that at some point in all these movies, Moses, Moses has a shocking revelation that he's really a Hebrew. Uh, and that he's one of the Hebrew people because he's, he's living in Pharaoh's household, and so he just thinks he's a priest, prince of Egypt, and that somehow he's a cousin of Yul Brenner. And again, if you've watched any other movie other than The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, Yul Brenner, and the Cecil B. DeMille classic, uh, then you're wrong, right? That's the one movie, but even that's wrong. That's wrong. Uh, so the, the, but, but because if you read the text, it doesn't say that. And in fact, his name is Moses. Moses, if you look back, we didn't read verse 10, but if you go back to verse 10, he's given the name Moses by Pharaoh's daughter because he was drawn out of the water, which he's going to carry around with him for the rest of his life. What does that mean he was drawn out of the water? His name literally means, it tells his origin story. He knows who he is, and he was one of the Hebrew children who was drawn out of the Nile River instead of drowning in it, uh, according to Pharaoh's command. He knew exactly who he was. And that's the way we're supposed to interpret the text. Uh, that's why, uh, believe it or not, Hollywood is not inspired in, its, in its, its interpretation of the Scripture. I know it's going to be a shock for some of you, so if you just need to take a moment to your breathing exercises. But, and actually, we have inspired interpretations of this passage. Uh, in the New Testament, the two I would say the two greatest sermons in the New Testament, and, and we, can, we can argue over what are the best sermons in the New Testament. We can come back to this later. But, but certainly, you can't count Jesus' sermons because that's because the New Testament doesn't really begin until after Jesus is raised. That's a whole other thing. But anyway, uh, but really, in the apostolic era, okay, we'll just say the apostolic era. The two best sermons in the apostolic era are, are, are Acts chapter 7, Stephen's sermon, and then Hebrews, which is, if you read it carefully, is... is drafted as a sermon, and towards the end, it, it, it tells you that it's, it's, it's a sermon. It calls itself an exhortation. And, and both of those sermons deal with this text. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who is now, this is the inspired interpretation. This is a, an inspired interpretation of our, of our text. Uh, Stephen says, when he was 40 years old, it came into his, talking to Moses, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. He goes out and he knows they're his brothers. He's picking up on the language in Exodus chapter 2 to give us that understanding so we can understand that. Moses knew his identity. He knew, on the one hand, he's adopted into Pharaoh's household. He understood that. He's adopted as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but by birth, he is one of the Hebrew people. He has two identities. And in our text, he chooses to identify himself primarily with the Hebrew people. So we need to understand this moment, this decision to go out, uh, not as, I'm going to take a walk this afternoon, see what's going on around me, but as saying, this is a moment. This is the moment. He's 40 years old, and he's going to begin taking up his mission to be the deliverer of God's people but he doesn't really have a plan, as becomes apparent, because he does the first thing that comes to hand. Um, he is committing himself decisively to his brothers and sisters, to his suffering people, because, 
because he understands what it means to be a Hebrew. He understands that he has a choice to either be, to either be in Pharaoh's household with the riches of Egypt or to be committed to the suffering people of God. And again, we know this is a choice that he is making because of the other best sermon in, in, the, in the New Testament, which is in Hebrews chapter 11, the apostle tells us in Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 27, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. There's two things that the apostle tells us there. One, he chose to be mistreated with the people of God. Because it's better to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. But along with that, why does he make that choice? Because it is the reproach of Christ. It's not suffering by itself, but it's the suffering of Christ. God's people suffer because Christ suffers. It's a reproach that Christ suffers, that people, that his people then share in, is because they are identified with Jesus Christ, ultimately, that Pharaoh that Pharaoh persecuted the Hebrew people, that, Hebrew, that, that the Hebrews were persecuted because ultimately of their Christian identity, because he endured as seeing him who is invisible. In other words, he looked forward to Christ, the one who was not yet seen, but who would yet be seen at the right and appointed time. He acts in faith understanding the nature of his God, understanding the nature of his people's relationship to his God. Because it is better to be with Christ than it is to be a part of the world. And so in this way, because Christ is yet to come, because it is before the coming of Jesus Christ, Moses moves forward in faith to become what we call a type of Christ or a prefigurement of Christ or a foreshadowing of Christ. Uh, he, is, he represents the Christ who is to come because he acts, he acts as Christ is calling him to act in this instance and to show the nature of the God whom he serves. He has to suffer. Because to not suffer with God's people is to reject the Savior of God's people. And so Moses, as one who was born to be a deliverer, born to be a Savior of his people as his parents saw him at the beginning of Exodus chapter 2 and saw he was a beautiful child at birth, Moses attempted to deliver the Hebrews. And he does it in two ways. He he, he sees an Egyptian beating one of his people, and he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He sees oppression. One of his brothers is being oppressed. He is being beaten unjustly. And so Moses acts to save him, and he attacks the oppressor. He attacks the attacker, and he kills him, buries him in the sand. This is, again, what Stephen says. 
and seeing one of them being wronged, uh, Acts 7.24, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. At that moment, at that moment, Moses thinks, well, this is it. I'm going to deliver my brother. I'm going to strike down his oppressor. That is going to be the beginning of the salvation of my oppressed people, the beginning of their deliverance. But what's the next thing that happens? Having done that, having in some sense begun the rebellion, begun the act of deliverance, he again attempts to deliver the Hebrews. That's the next thing that happens. It may not be apparent to you, but what's the problem in verse 13? When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? They're fighting. They're arguing with each other. They're oppressing one another. One of the problems that God's people, that God's people have is not just oppression from the outside, but the oppression of sin that we come into the church, we go outside, there's all the bad people, and we come into the church, and there's all the bad people, which is not the way it's supposed… we don't think that's how it's supposed to work. And again, this is one of the objections. And another one of the objections I frequently get to the Christian faith and to the church is that people will say it. People have said to me, I just had a coworker say this to me, well, I used to go to church, but people, the people there weren't nice. I said, yeah. Not actually what we offer. I mean, I'd like to offer that. I really would. I'd really like to say, come here because everybody's going to be great. And like, and you guys are wonderful. Don't get me wrong. I'm talking about the other churches, right? Everybody, they're, you're swell. But, but that's the problem. Is that the same the same stuff that's going on outside? The vanity, the quarreling, the striving. We come into the church, we're still, we're still sinners. We're not in glory. We're not perfected saints. And so there's still that struggle, and that can happen here as well. Now, now the deal is, in here, in here, when you hear the word of rebuke, right, but by faith, we're supposed to receive that. And that is the word of rebuke that Moses gives. He says, why do you strike your companion? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. The, 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 the Egyptians are oppressors. We're not supposed to oppress one another with our sins. We're supposed to repent and to love one another. He's trying to bring about reconciliation, which is a point, again, I keep going back and forth with Acts chapter 7, but that's what, uh, that's what again, Stephen says in Acts 7.26, and on the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconciling them, saying, men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? So he is trying, he is working as a deliverer in a sort of, in a, in, a, in a holistic manner. There's a whole thing that's going on here. It's not just setting them free from outward oppression, but trying to help set them free from the sinful oppression, from the oppression of sin, which is within their hearts. And that's the nature of deliverance. That's the nature of deliverance from sin is full conformity, fully living out God's will for all of His people. And as a consequence, Moses was rejected by the Hebrews. What, what is it, what is, what's the reply? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? His intervention is unacknowledged. It's not like, oh, yeah, you acted as our deliverer. It's like, who gave you the authority? Who gave you the right 
to say this. Now, it's interesting. I see this a lot in my line of work, uh, and, 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 and surely yeah, I work in a juvenile detention facility, and, and surely nobody else has encountered this uh, outside of those circumstances. When you tell somebody that they're in the wrong, uh, where I work, tell one of the kids, well, you're doing something wrong. I said, well, who told you? You don't get to tell me that. Like, well, wait a minute. The point is you did it wrong. You're not supposed to hit that guy. Why, why does it matter who told you that? And yet that's the first response of rebellious heart. Who made you judge and a prince over me? If your brother, like literally your brother, it says, to you, well, you shouldn't hit you. Why are you hitting our sister? You shouldn't hit Like, you're not in charge of me. Right? Same thing. It's the same dynamic that always goes on in the human heart is to deny the reality of the sin and to point in another direction. The only the thing is, right, the guy has a point. Who made you a judge over us? Who made you a prince over us? He is a prince of Egypt, but he's not, at this point, there's been no ceremony, there's been no recognition, there's been no call to Moses. He's not been called and appointed to be the deliverer, the judge, the prince, the ruler over the Hebrews. That's coming. And we know, and many of you have, have already read on ahead in the book, uh, or, or you've seen the movie, uh, that the call is coming, and that's Exodus chapter 3. There's a call that's going to come from out of the burning bush, but that's not yet happened. Moses is actually acting on his own. And in order to formally take up his office, in order to really be in charge, to be put in charge, he has to be appointed by God if he is to act as a deliverer, if he is to deliver God's people. And so consequently, though, at this point, Moses is afraid, and he thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. He is Pharaoh recognizes what's going on at this point. Pharaoh is afraid of Moses. He was feared, Moses was feared by Pharaoh, not, not the other way around. Moses, Pharaoh, excuse me, Pharaoh tried to kill Moses before this. He didn't know it was Moses he was trying to kill, but he tried throughout Exodus chapter 1 into Exodus chapter 2 he tried to kill all the Hebrew baby boys because he's afraid that there will be a powerful leader who's going to rise up to lead the Hebrews, to organize them, and so to organize them militarily and to organize them to leave Egypt. And so now, Pharaoh seems to have some idea of Moses' identity, that he is ultimately a Hebrew, and now he is acting, he killed an Egyptian. Everybody knows right? Moses thought, like, I can keep this on the down low. Well, that didn't work out. Everybody knows about this. So, if the, if the two Hebrew slaves know about it, then, then even Pharaoh knows about it. And so, Pharaoh recognizes what's going on, and he is going to try. He tries to kill Pharaoh. And so, Moses leaves. I think sometimes we read this, and we think, well, therefore, Moses must be afraid of Pharaoh. But the apostolic testimony is that he wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid, and we understand that he wasn't afraid when it says it in, in Hebrews eleven twenty seven, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, he doesn't try to appease Pharaoh. He doesn't try to get on Pharaoh's good side. He doesn't say, well, that was a mistake. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to hang out with my cousin Yul Brenner, 
or whatever it is, and, and just be a, I'll be a good guy now. I'll be a good boy. He doesn't say that. He recognizes that everything has fallen apart, that he didn't have a plan. He didn't know what he was doing, but he's not going to give up. He leaves Egypt because either do what Pharaoh wants him to do, try to appease Pharaoh, or leave. Because his third option is get killed by Pharaoh. So he doesn't want that. He doesn't want to be dead. So he goes. He flees from Pharaoh, and he stays. He goes into the land of Midian. He enters into a period of preparation. He has to wait. And that's the problem, again, that's going on here, is that it would seem Moses has the calling. Moses has the gifting. Moses has the ability. He's been raised in Pharaoh's household. It is uh, Stephen describes him in Acts chapter 7 as being mighty. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his word and deeds. He's a mighty man. He's 40 years old. 40 years. You know, once you hit 40, you think 40 is, is just seems to have gone by real fast. I think 1970 to 2010, that, that wasn't a really long period of time. But then, but then I thought about 1930 to 1970. That was a really long period of time. And, and, and 40 years is a long time to be prepared. Moses thinks he's ready to begin, but he's not. God has him wait. He has to prepare. The work doesn't begin instantly or immediately because God has his own plan. Even though it's frustrating, even though it's not what he wants, and even though the Hebrews are literally suffering, literally being oppressed and attacked by their Egyptian overlords, it is not yet time. And here again, we see how Moses is a picture of Christ who is to come. Because our Savior did not descend out of the clouds and immediately go to the cross. He was born and lived for 30-odd years, give or take. There was a period of preparation, a time before he was baptized. It was his baptism that he was formally called. The voice came from heaven saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, the moment when Jesus, the Son of God, was called and ordained as Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. In a similar way, Moses has to wait for that moment. But just as Moses, after he is called, is going to deliver his people, so Jesus Christ, after that moment of his baptism in the River Jordan, did all the things that were necessary to deliver you from sin. And so our text, at least through verse 15, could be somewhat discouraging because Moses failed to deliver the Hebrews. But we see from the remainder of our text how it is that God made Moses the Hebrews' deliverer. At this point, the temptation is to say, well, that's it. We're done. He got it all wrong. If God's people are going to be delivered, it'll be somebody else. But instead, Moses' first act, as far as we can tell, in the land of Midian, is to deliver the priest's daughters. He sits down by a well, and the daughters of the priest of Midian come, and they draw water. And so this is, this is a water where you draw out, you have to, I'm sorry, this is a well, this is a well from which you draw out water, and then they poured it into the troughs for their sheep. 
And apparently it was the habit of the shepherds, who are a bunch of jerk-faced pig dogs, uh, to wait for the women to do the hard work, the, 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 these, these shepherd women, to the daughters, the daughters of, of, of the priests of Midian, to fill up all the troughs for their sheep. And then they'd show up like, we are big, strong men. And then like, they'd shove them away. Now they've done all the hard work. And, and they'd shove them away, and then they let their sheep drink all the water, the shepherd sheep. And Moses sees this, and what's the very first thing he does? Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Uh, he's, he's doing, he, they, they are oppressors, right? Those big jerk-faced shepherds who think they're so tough, uh, they're oppressors just like the Egyptians were. And the daughters of the priests of Midian, those seven daughters, they are the oppressed. And so he successfully delivers them from their oppression. He successfully delivers them. And so he's recognized as such. The, the daughters then say to their father, Ruel, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. That after, that after he saved them, then he gave them more water and he provided for them. He did an act of deliverance and an act of provision. He actually is cut out for this line of work. Even though it appeared that he wasn't, he was clearly not cut out for the work of deliverance because that whole thing just blew up in his face and he had to leave Egypt. Yet now, that's the very first thing he does. And in this way, it's important to see how Moses is identified with the patriarchs. He is shown to be similar to the patriarchs. By the patriarchs, we're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the book of Genesis. And that's an important line of identification. It's important that he be identified with them. First, in that he's, he meets uh, the daughters of the priests of Midian at a well, and he ends up marrying one of them, Zipporah. And this harkens back to the book of Genesis, where Isaac's wife was found at a well. Jacob met his wife at a well. And so now Moses meets his wife at a well. He is like his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs back in Genesis, centuries earlier, and that he is also a sojourner. He, it says in, after he is married, he lives with his... He lives with, uh, the priest with Ruel, with Ruel's family. He marries Zipporah. He appears to be settling down. He has a son, Gershom. Eventually, he'll have a second son. But what name does he give him? Gershom means sojourner. And he identifies with the name sojourner. I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, that's important. That is an important term. Because somebody who moves to another country, to another land to stay there, is not a sojourner. That person is an immigrant. I immigrate from one country to another. I'm going to stay there. I'm going to move there and stay there. A sojourner is somebody who doesn't belong there. I might be living there. I might be living there for years and years and years and years and years. But that is not my home. This is not my ultimate home. I have someplace else that I am going to. He is like Abraham, he is like Isaac, he is like Jacob. This is not where he is going to stay. 
And ultimately, we know why that is the case. It is because he is going to go back to Egypt, and he is going to help, help the people of Israel leave Egypt and go to the permanent place, the permanent home that the Lord has given to them, the land that was actually promised so long ago in the book of, in the book of Genesis, first to Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, to the land of Canaan. And so we can see what happens in verses 16 through 22, that Moses is going to become like the patriarchs, to become a father to Israel. And in that way, Moses is confirmed as the deliverer of the Hebrews. He is entering into a period of preparation, which is a shock when you're 40 years old. This is Moses' midlife crisis in some way, shape, or form. And I'm not saying that to trivialize it, because midlife crisis is actually a crisis for so many people. You get, to, you get into that middle part of your life, and you've done everything, and everything's settled, everything's set up, everything's good to go, and then it all falls apart. That's the crisis. What is this? This isn't how it was supposed to happen. And this is a literal crisis for Moses, because it appears that having prepared, having done everything that he was supposed to do, having become mighty in word and deed, a ruler amongst the Egyptians, somebody as well-equipped as anybody has ever been in the history of the world to deliver an oppressed people, that wasn't it. He's not prepared. It's going to be another 40 years 40 years of preparation, of further preparation out in the wilderness. He has to wait on God, and Israel must wait on God. I mean, in a real way, Moses has it easy. I'm not saying that being a shepherd is an easy job, but it's easier than being sorely oppressed by Egyptian taskmasters. They are, the, the, the Hebrews, the Israelites, back in Egypt, they have to continue waiting. They are waiting and waiting and waiting. And there really is no clear sign that they will ever be delivered. I mean, what's the sign that they have there in Egypt? We're not told that there is anything. It's not told, they're not told 40 more years. Just give it 40 more years. In 40 years... That's a lifetime. And if you don't believe me, ask anybody who's younger than 40. It's a long time. It's a long time to have to wait. It's a time that has no end if there's not given just 40 years and then it'll all be over. And that's the nature of our time now, is that you have to wait on God for deliverance from the afflictions of this world. This is a period of suffering. This is a period of hardship. We live still under the curse of the fall. We live in a world full of sin and suffering. And many of us bear in our bodies the pain, the literal pain of the fall 
bodies, many of us, not all of us, some of you are really young and that's nice, but the rest of us limp and are crouched over or groan and moan or have that ache, have bodies which are malformed or things that people can't see because that are in your head and that nobody understands that. Because after all, if it's in your head, then it, people say it doesn't really exist. But of course, it does exist. It's your brain, which is part of your body, which does exist. All of that is going on. And it doesn't end. You know how lousy this world is? I'll tell you how bad this world is. In Revelation chapter 6, there are perfected saints in glory who are underneath the throne crying out to God, how long? If this side of the second coming of Christ is so bad that people in heaven are saying, how long, O Lord? It's bad. And yet, we need to remember what time we live in. I said earlier that Moses is a type of Christ. Which is a word when you say type, T-Y-P-E, it just means foreshadowing, prefigurement. It's a term, it's a theological term, or a, a biblical interpretation term, really. There are parallels, and you've heard them a million times, there are parallels then between the life of Moses and the life of Christ, but the life of, or, but what was happening with Israel and their deliverance and what God does with Christians and their deliverance. And so the times are similar, especially in this way, as Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. It was the time of promise. He says it was a time of promise drew near, and, and there arose in Egypt another king who did not know Joseph, he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. That was the time of promise where infants were being killed by Pharaoh. But it was a time of promise because then Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. This is the time of promise because Christ has been born. Because His period of preparation has come and ended. Because He completed His public ministry. And He went to the cross. And He died on the cross for your sins. And He was delivered from the grave on the third day. So that this body in which you are presently suffering, in which you bear the marks of the fall, in which you bear the marks of sin and the corruption of the flesh and the power of the evil one over this present age so that this body will be raised up on the last day in glory along with His glorious body. He has come. He has done His work. And you want this to end. 
And the good news of the gospel, beloved, is that you have been delivered. Deliverance has come. This is the time of promise. But better, better than the time of promise that's recorded for us in the book of Exodus, in which Stephen speaks. Stephen goes on to make the point. Moses was a deliverer of God's people. Now Jesus has come, and he has delivered God's people once and for all. The promise has been fulfilled. When does this end? When does the suffering end? God's going to keep on giving you more than you can handle. Because Christ, because Jesus Christ has already done more, has already done more for you than you can ever imagine, more than you will ever need. He has not delivered you simply from sin. He has not only delivered you from the sufferings of this present age, He has delivered you into, into the glory of the age to come. And we will see it in its fullness. We shall see it in its fullness. For He was raised up. And if He has been raised up, He is merely the beginning of the resurrection. The resurrection must be concluded. And therefore, you know you know that the Christ who delivered you from sin will also deliver you from sorrow. This is the Christian hope, beloved. Not that God isn't going to give you more than you can handle. Oh, no. This is the Christian hope. The certain knowledge that your deliverance from sin and sorrow is secure in Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Lord, we give you thanks then that in Christ our Lord we already have all things. And though our hearts cry out along with the perfected saints in glory, how long, we know that the answer has already been given. For all things are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And so grant to us faith and hope that we may keep our eyes fixed upon him fixed upon his cross and his empty tomb until that moment when all the things that have already been done shall be revealed in all of their glory on the last day, that on the last day that hope which presently sustains us will no longer be necessary along with faith, and then there will merely be our all-consuming love for Jesus, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen.